there's a corner that it's fairly easy to paint oneself into. Actually, I shouldn't say it exactly like that. It might actually be very hard to do, to paint oneself into this corner. Uh, it might take a lot of skill. It might take particular dedication. Either way, in any event, I've managed to do it. And that corner is this. Wanting to promote a naturalist's view of the mind, we tend to reject any idea that calls upon quote-unquote extra stuff. You know, what did we call it before? Exciting, intangible, ethereal stuff, whatever we called it. Extra stuff aside from our famous, normal, boring, physical stuff. We don't, we don't want to have to call upon extra stuff when attempting to explain the mind. But that quickly turns into sort of reflexively saying that, of course, the brain makes the mind. And that, in turn, leads us to imagine that you can examine the brain alone and in so doing, somehow uncover consciousness, uncover free will, uncover a, a rich notion of selfhood, all by kind of staring at and you know, presumably dissecting uh, and trying to understand a simple mass of flesh. All of which, to me, is, is kind of like I was trying to think of the right analogy. It's, it, it, to me, it's like trying to explain the, the excitement and the thrill and the fun of a road trip by taking apart the engine of your car. So what we quickly forget is that the human mind is a, is a kind of a collaborative effort between the hardware of the brain and the software of all the stuff that we have, quote unquote, filled it with, to use an imprecise term. So... All of our memes, all of our language, even what you might call the, the operating system that is our conception of the mind as a whole, that operating system that I think we said last time is busy, you know, uh, it's, it's sort of the overall organizing principle, and it's busy doing things like running apps and running programs and storing information and storing data and doing all that kind of stuff. But either way, both the operating system and all the programs and all the information, although of course it has to be well suited to the hardware of the mind, it has to be compatible fundamentally, nonetheless they are two very, very different things and asking questions about one is in no way to ask questions necessarily about the other. So, you know, we would no long, no more try and ask what it means that, that uh, you know, we, we see obviously through our eyes because of uh, the way light hits off of certain cones and that sends signals into a certain part of the brain. We would no, no more try and understand that by describing a painting and the emotional experience I have of it, we, we wouldn't try and do that, but often we do the flip side. We, we try to explain the emotional resonance of a painting by talking about those lights and the cones and the signals and, and all that other stuff. So we, we kind of play a little bit of a double standard where we're, we get it on the one side. You can't explain neuroscience, hard neuroscience, by talking about, you know, the content of your memories. On the flip side, we, we do often mistake that we you can't do the other either. We can't understand the software purely by carving up and or and I, I should say metaphorically in many cases dissecting the the quote unquote hardware, the flesh of the brain itself. 
So, uh, so we've been talking about how the way that we talk about mind uh, historically, including and in, you know, especially we really focused in on uh, the European conversations, starting in what we call the European Dark Ages, the Middle Ages, and then carrying through to the present day. Sort of historically, the way that those some of those European traditions of thought have. Uh, not only created descriptions of the mind that very much carry through to this day, um, but they have, in a way, shaped the mind itself. They've had a profound effect, if you will, on the nature of the operating system, on the way it is structured, on our expectations for it, and on, you know, when we begin to, when we run a self-diagnostic test, uh, that the way we've been talking about mind is very much influenced by the those conversations that, you know, as we discussed, for those of us who are in this, are descendants of this intellectual lineage or this literal lineage of, uh, from, from medieval Europe, uh, you know, very, very tangible influence that we see, uh, I would say, very much to this day. Um, but so when I say mind, what do I mean? You know, I, I mean consciousness, I mean a notion of self, I mean identity, I mean the capacity to have rich experiences in the world, you know, again, to experience my, my sunset or my painting or a piece of music or a human relationship in a way that is, you know, clearly more than just some, uh, some piece of functionality, more than something that's purely driven by a kind of evolutionary imperative for survival, or at the very least, whatever the reason for it, it very much feels like it is much more than that. And of course, naturally, you know, getting us back to our core topic, I very much, when speaking about mind, I very much mean freedom and the capacity to make real robust free choices, uh, the capacity to make choices. And then of course the actual process that we use to go about making them. So as we've discussed, and if you've been at all on board with the way I'm kind of uh, trying to tell this story, or, you know, at the very least, if you're willing to hear me out, I want to keep pushing on this idea this idea that our story of mind is not only one of things that quote unquote fill the vessel of mind, so all the the content of our mind, the, you know, our our experiences, our memories, our language, all those kinds of good things, but it we're very largely to to a very large extent when we talk about these conversations about mind, we are, as I say, we're talking about. Uh, how we have shaped the mind itself, how we have shaped that vessel, shaped that operating system. So to continue with this line of thinking, we're going to go in what might seem like an odd direction, at least at first. Uh, for the next two episodes, actually, we're going to be talking about a guy named Wilder Penfield. Now, Penfield was a neuroscientist, but that's that's really not saying it. Uh, I think it's best to say that he is what we would call the father of modern neuroscience. I referenced him in an earlier episode. I said that he conducted what he considered to be an experiment, quote-unquote, proving the existence of something like a soul. Now, to be very clear, he didn't use the exact word soul. But in the way he comes to talk about mind... I think we'll recognize that that the two concepts, again, the way he's talking about mind, the two concepts come to be very, very similar, almost you know exactly similar. Now, the reason I'm dropping this in here now is that some of the specifics of Penfield's work 
it plays actually into this last discussion we had. So a, a neuroscientist operating in the early to middle part of the 20th century and some medieval monks and thinkers and scholars and, and priests having these conversations about mind. Yeah, I, I see a very tight uh, intertwining between those two things. So that might seem like a stretch, but we're going to, of course, we're going to talk about why that is. And we'll also see that this very much plays into our entire conversation about freedom and free will. This is one of the things that um, this notion of agency, this notion of free choosing is one that Penfield comes back to in a number of different ways. Uh, and he's actually going to show us a, a person who temporarily, he would argue, actually lacks free will. So should be pretty interesting to be able to look at that. Now, to be clear, the reason for my fascination with Penfield and, and his relevance to our conversation, Penfield, you could argue, and I think I said this before, you could arguably call Penfield the father of modern neuroscience. The man who first understood that, that the way the brain and its many billions of neurons worked was essentially by sending electrochemical signals back and forth. Suffice to say that in, in his time, Penfield knew more about the workings of the brain than pretty much any other person on the planet. And for all of that, for all the, being the, the equivalent of Newton in the field of neuroscience, again, that's my, that's the way I describe him, but I, I think it's an arguable description. Um, uh, for all that, for all this career that he spends deep in the inner workings of the physical stuff of the brain, Penfield came to the ultimate conclusion that the brain alone could not possibly account for the mind. That there had to be some other substance or some other energy or some other presence almost operating at the control panel of our brains to give the various purely functional pieces of the brain some kind of overall executive cohesive direction. Some kind of function that of real higher thought and complex decision making. So we're going to start by diving into Penfield's thinking and really working very closely with his writings. I want you to understand where he's coming from. I want you to understand how he thinks. And it's a bit of a deep dive compared to what we've done so far. I mean, we haven't been heavy on quotes and, and the rest with a lot of the thinkers that we've been working on. We're usually just kind of dipping into them. With Penfield, I want to dive a little bit deeper. But to make our point with Penfield, we, we need to not only understand his conclusion, we need to understand why he made it. And again, this all comes back to my fascination with him that here's the guy that you'd think if you just heard, oh, yes, the father of modern neuroscience, uh, um, understood more about the brain than anyone else in his time, you'd assume and that's not a good practice, as we know, but you'd assume that this is a person who's going to be pushing a pretty naturalist conception of mind. Not at all the case. Penfield comes to exactly the opposite conclusion that I ultimately come to in, in my thinking about these things. And let, let's, let's be clear, far more significantly, he comes to the opposite conclusion of folks like Daniel Dennett and Richard Dawkins and the many, many other brilliant naturalists who are out there trying to understand and describe the mind in the context of the brain, but it truly using the tools of a naturalist explanation. In any event, for Penfield, much of his writing references work that he does with patients wherein he's applying a live electrode to various regions of the exposed brain of a conscious patient, a 
the, let me just, you know, say it again, the exposed brain of a conscious patient. And he's getting, as a consequence, he's able to get back their direct reports of what it is they're experiencing. And by the way, as you're envisioning this, unless you're imagining some poor student who's getting paid like a, a few bucks because they answered an ad in the college newspaper and now they're strapped in a chair with their brains in the breeze. Well, well, okay, it's not it's not that not like that. Rest assured, these are all patients who required some other kind of, of neurosurgical procedure that made it so that this was all necessary preparation for the surgery that would be performed. And it was actually often treat, uh, treatments for epilepsy, which we'll, we'll discuss a little bit later on. But let's give a listen uh, to some of the, the some of what he recorded from sessions conducted in 1933. And again, these are direct reports of patients who are having their brains stimulated by electrodes, directly stimulated by an electrode, and being asked to describe that experience by Penfield and his colleagues. So, and everything, by the way, that we're going to hear today is from uh, Penfield's uh, Mystery of the Mind, just a, a, a fantastic piece of work. In any event, quote, A young man stated he was sitting at a baseball game in a small town and watching a little boy crawl under the fence to join the audience. Another was in a concert hall listening to music. An orchestration, he explained. He could hear the different instruments. All these were unimportant events, but were recalled with complete detail. D.F. could hear instruments playing a melody. I re-stimulated the same point 30 times, trying to mislead her, and dictated each response to a stenographer. Each time I re-stimulated, she heard the melody again. It began at the same place we, we went on, and we went on from chorus to verse. When she hummed in accompaniment to the music, the tempo was what you would have expected. Unquote. Now, first of all, these are remarkable insofar as they're so detailed, so specific. Quite possibly, if you think about it, quite possibly more detailed and specific than any of these folks would have been if you just asked them to. So, so tell me about that baseball game you went to uh, as a kid. Do you, do, you happen to, do you remember anything about somebody crawling under a fence or what was the score? Anything like that. The likelihood that you're going to find this kind of detail when you're trying to remember these sort of incidental, we call them incidental memories. Again, they're not this, this monumental thing happened to me at this time on this day, therefore I remember the circumstances. Where were you when this happened? No, this is just a, this is a more or less perfectly random memory that comes up. It just so happens to be there in shocking, very, very full detail. And another point that fascinates me here, these aren't sort of simple, abstract, one-dimensional sensations. Penfield doesn't just press a button and make fear, or another that makes blue, or a third that's going to make just the sound of birds chirping, sort of isolated sound effect sensations. These are complex and detailed memories with interlocking details. The baseball game, I, I just find, I find particularly striking. It's Again, it's just not a monumental event. Um, nothing that significant is happening, but it's recalled with such precision, such depth, such detail. Now, this to me, in part, points to the richness of what the brain is capable of. And Penfield does not disagree. And, and actually, I need to make a, a distinction here that Penfield makes early on in his work. 
the entire purpose of this work, which this is kind of the pinnacle of Penfield's philosophy of mind. He, he wrote a number of different works on a wide array of subjects, but this is the work that you look to to say, okay, this is Penfield trying to explain the mind to us. And the entire purpose of the work is to ask this sort of basic, fundamental, and actually extremely complicated question. To quote Penfield as he states the core problem that he wants to know, quote, can the brain explain the mind? Can the brain achieve by neuronal activity all that the mind accomplishes? Unquote. So right off the bat, we're drawing a line between mind and brain. Now, he defines the distinction as, quote, uh, the, quote, automatic mechanisms of the brain on the one hand, and on the other, there's the, quote, brain's machinery for the mind, unquote. And now, we, I mean, we get the basic distinction right now. We're talking about functional pieces of the brain on one hand and the mind on the other. Um, we're going to see it's actually going to be a much harder distinction than that to make precisely, but we'll, we'll get to that. And by the way, this, this latter idea, this, this quote-unquote brain's machinery for the mind, that requires a little bit more explanation, but let me give you a little more background on Penfield, and, and then we'll give you a more precise explanation of exactly what that entails. So in any event, we see this line right away, as I said. Uh, what is the brain that is functional, almost like a part of the body? Uh, even if it's doing very complicated things, it's still, it's performing them in a very functional way. And then what is the part of the brain that creates or facilitates the actual mind? The, the thing that rules over all the other little pieces and tells them what to do, tells them how to do it. And that, of course, is also the piece that we've really been talking about all this time. It's, it does all these fun things that we've been talking about, like making me me and making it so that I can make choices and, and be really richly, rigorously conscious in the world. Um, and, and all, you know, all that, all, just all this kind of good stuff that we keep coming back to and we sort of contain under that the general heading, the quote-unquote phenomena of the mind. So... Penfield takes us to a, to a further experiment. And, and actually, no, that, that's, not, that's, the, that's a misnomer. This is not an experiment per se, as it would have been wildly unethical to have committed this as a kind of controlled experiment. Rather, this is Penfield observing patients who had had a certain kind of what were called petite mal seizures. Now, as a very quick piece of background, um, and that I'm fundamentally unqualified to give, so I'm going to be very glib about this, um, but seizures fundamentally are rushes of uncontrolled uh, electrochemical interactions in the brain. So, I mean, to use a, a, a very basic and somewhat misleading analogy, it's, it's like sending a shock through a computer. It's, it's an overload. It's, it's the fundamental thing that the computer runs on, but it's such an overload of that thing. Electricity in the case of the computer and electrochemical interactions on the case of the brain, that it, it fundamentally overrides either of those machines for a period of time and with a, a variety of sort of different consequences. Now, roughly, the seizures have been always divided into uh, two basic categories. And again, I'm being very glib here, um, but we've got on the one hand, we've got grand mal seizures, and, and these are the kinds that typically create visible physical reactions. And on the other hand, we have petite mal seizures. Um, these are not qu quite so quote unquote severe, 
and as, as, as I'm saying all this, I'm trying to really tread very lightly while talking about this, um, particularly as I'm doing so in a glib and clinical way. First of all, as I said, this is not my area of expertise. And secondly, I also know, more importantly, I know that these are part of people's lived experiences. So as I'm talking in my kind of glib, cursory, uh, clinical podcaster way about this, do understand that I understand that. And, you know, we should all bear that in mind that these are actual phenomena of, of mind that, that people experience. In, in any event, uh, these petite mal seizures, though they're not, again, quote unquote, as severe, whatever that means, but not as quote unquote severe, not visible from the outside, nonetheless, they have a significant impact on the operation of the brain of the person having them. So, Penfield tells the story of a particular patient who would have petite mal seizures that Penfield said interfered exactly with what he calls the brain's machinery for the, for the mind, quote unquote, the brain's machinery for the mind. So in essence, for a period of time, it would overload and it essentially these, these seizures would shut off what Penfield calls the mind. It would turn the patient into what he called an automaton. And I'm using the term that he used. I am not wild about it. I'm using the term that he used. Now, Penfield describes a number of patients who experienced this particular kind of seizure. And by the way, in this quote, Penfield talks about automisms. And by that, he means the result of these petite mal seizures in the period during which the, the mind function, quote unquote, the mind function has been, quote unquote, shut off or, or blocked out by the effects of these seizures. Quote, patients are quite unable to predict when these absences of mind will come. I shall cite a few examples. One patient, who I shall call A, was a serious student of the piano and subject to automisms of the type called petite mal. He was apt to make a slight interruption in his practicing, which his mother recognized as the beginning of a, quote, absence. Then he would continue to play for a time with considerable dexterity. Patient B was subject to ep epileptic automism that began with discharge in the temporal lobe. Sometimes the attack came on him while he was walking home from work. He would continue to walk and to thread his way through busy streets on his way home. He might realize later that he had had an attack because there was a blank in his memory for part of the journey, as from Avenue X to Street Y. If patient C was driving a car, he would continue to drive, although he might discover later that he had driven through one or more red lights. Unquote. So, do you see the line that's being drawn here? It's not as though these patients just shut down like a, a robot without a power source. They don't become catatonic or unconscious or otherwise wholly inactive. Rather, they were able to continue with whatever function they were performing, even functions requiring considerable brain power, like playing a piano or walking or driving. But in that process, they were no longer able to make new executive decisions. Thus, the patient who didn't stop at red lights. Now, equally, if we imagine a patient continuing to play the piano, Penfield makes it clear that though they can continue to play with, with considerable dis dis dexterity, to use his term, 
that patient uh, certainly could not decide to play another piece of music or to make some important change in the tempo or the presentation of the piece that they were playing. And here is where I'll take a moment to reintroduce this phrase, the machinery for the mind, quote, the machinery for the mind. Basically, it can mean one of two possible things for Penfield, and the distinction is ultimately vital. Either the brain's machinery for the mind is that part of the brain that actively produces the mind, you know, and to be clear, the mind over and above uh, what he identifies as functions of the automatic brain, and those include things like language and motor function and, you know, what did we just hear, the ability to play the piano or walk a familiar route or drive a car. So the brain's machinery for the mind is either what produces the mind itself that's that's up over and sort of directing all these other functional pieces, or if we don't think that the brain is entirely capable, purely on its own, purely based on the substance that it has available to it, if the brain is not entirely capable of making a mind without any outside help, then this machinery for the mind is, is more or less how the mind enters the brain. So, so it, it's akin to a control panel, a, a cockpit. Uh, so it's, it's the steering wheel without which all of these functional pieces um, couldn't possibly connect to the conscious that the consciousness that ends up doing things like making decisions and ultimately directing and coordinating all these other functions and giving them their their higher executive purpose. So uh, the the function can continue to play the piano. It takes that mind. It takes the the consciousness to to affect the decision of deciding to play a new piece of music or reinterpreting the piece of music that we're playing now. In any event, so all the activity that these folks, these quote-unquote automatons, uh, to use again, a word that really does make me pretty uncomfortable, all of that activity for Penfield is what the brain alone is capable of. This is the non-executive functioning. This is the, the, the machinery function, the biological computer, as he calls it. So in these cases, the person continues on a track, but can't make any significant choices or adjustments. And also will not remember any of this in any event because they're also sort of incapable of producing new memories. That's another piece of what happens when this brain function, however it works, when this brain function is shut down. All of that is the province of the mind. Again, what Penfield is calling the machinery for the mind. So let's hear him once more on this subject of the quote-unquote automaton. Quote, the human automaton, which replaces the man when the highest brain mechanism is inactivated, is a thing without the capacity to make completely new decisions. It is a thing without the capacity to form new memory records, and a thing without the indefinable attribute, a sense of humor. The automaton is incapable of thrilling to the beauty of a subset or experiencing contentment, happiness, love, or compassion. These, like all awarenesses, are functions of the mind. The automaton is a thing that uses the reflexes and the skills inborn and acquired that are housed in the computer. At times, it may have to make a plan that will serve it in place of a purpose for a few moments, 
this automatic coordination that is ever active within each of us seems to be the most amazing of all biological computers, unquote. So definitely a, a lot going on here. A couple things that are striking. Uh, Penfield does, as he says at the very end, he allots the so-called computer. And that, again, we, we want to we take that to mean the, the mechanical, func the purely functional aspect of the brain, um, just the brain, the functions that he, uh, that he does not attribute to the quote-unquote mind. But, but we see here that this computer, this quote-unquote computer, has a terrific range of functionality. Uh, perhaps the most striking thing in all of this to me is Penfield's use of pronouns. Now, note that the patient, as he's talking about this, the patient is no longer quote-unquote him or quote-unquote her or quote-unquote them. It's no longer Tracy. It's no longer Bill. The patient is now an it, a thing. So one errant snap of electricity and the individual's personhood is no longer available to them. They are, alas, an automaton. Now, needless to say, let's keep this experiment in, uh, in mind. Uh, but there's one more that I, I found striking, and it's not quite as macabre and you know, somewhat uncomfortable and, and potentially depressing as the last. Here's the scenario. In preparation for surgery to treat epilepsy, Penfield has identified the source of the epileptic impulses in a patient to be coming from very near the patient's language center. Thus, to ensure that he won't operate on the wrong part of the brain and induce a permanent aphasia in the patient, Penfield has to identify exactly where the boundary line of that language center is. Now, he further tells us that in the case of the language center, the application of a very low-intensity live electrode to that area will, will simply disrupt it. It'll shut off the language center for as long as the electrode remains applied, but as soon as you take the electrode away, all the normal functioning is immediately restored. So, for the purpose of preparing for a surgery, he is asking the waking patient, whose brain again is exposed to look at a series of cue cards with fairly simple shapes on them. So, you know, car, turtle, tiger, etc. The patient is to report the name of each shape when it is revealed. Now, this proceeds at first without issue, until Penfield applies the electrode to the speech center, and the patient uh, doesn't, and importantly here, the, uh, Penfield applies the electrode to the speech center, but the patient doesn't know he's done so. He applies the electrode to the language center just as Penfield's colleague reveals a card with a picture of a butterfly. Now, here's Penfield's description of what occurs. Quote, Then, before the picture of a butterfly was shown to him, I applied the electrode where I supposed the speech cortex to be. The patient remained silent for a time. Then he snapped his fingers as, as though in exasperation. I withdrew the electrode and he spoke at once. Now I can talk, he said. Butterfly. I couldn't get that word butterfly, so I tried to get the word moth. Unquote. Now, Penfield's interpretation of this, his read on this, is very interesting. From the patient's response, he points out first 
that the patient knew what a butterfly was on a conceptual level. That, that in Penfield's reading of this, that never went away. The idea of butterfly was not removed. The shape was sensible to him. It, it wasn't as though he couldn't get access to the idea, but what he could not quote unquote get, and Penfield loves this verb in this case, uh, get, um, what he could not get, uh, was the actual word itself that referred to this idea, referred to the picture, referred to this thing that he knew about, this butterfly. So having driven into this kind of neuronal dead end, you know, where the patient would normally be able to access the the word that goes along with the image and the idea of butterfly, goes down that normal road and and it turns out it's a dead end. Things aren't working the way they're supposed to. So the patient then kind of tries to back up, go back to the source and, and try to try this all in a different direction. Um, so he goes back to this source, this idea, quote unquote idea of butterfly that he still has in his mind. And he finds something similar to that idea, in this case, a moth. And, and then he sees if, well, maybe if I can't get the word butterfly, maybe I can get the word moth and that will somehow uh, shed some light on how all this is working. So the picture that Penfield is painting here is of a consciousness at the control board, sort of trying to find a way around a malfunction in the system. And it's a significant uh, malfunction, mind you, and, and it's notable that speech uh, is in what Penfield considers the province of the brain. And I, I keep coming back to this, but it really is just amazing as Penfield is kind of dividing up these different functions, the the really rich, and powerful, and important pieces of the overall functioning of the mind brain, of the entire thing. It's amazing how many of those functions end up on the side of brain versus mind, certainly language in this case. Um, but still, even with this, this profoundly complicated and interesting function of language, the brain remains nothing but a series of functions while the mind is able to improvise and it's able to use a number of different tools at its disposal. So, you know, when the path of least resistance uh, for meeting its goals are frustrated, when it can't get to this word butterfly, it, it tries to kind of rig the system in such a way that it can get to it via a different route, via, well, let's see if we can get to the word for butterfly by going through the idea for moth, and let's see if we can get down that road and it'll, and it'll work. Um, when all that fails, when he, when he can't seem to find any words, he snaps his fingers. Which, so he's found another way to communicate, um, even though the one that he typically knows, typically relies on in every other normal case, even though that form of communication is suddenly completely closed off to him. Now, also of note, again, here, it's Penfield's use of pronouns. In this case, he takes his cue directly from the patient. And re remember, when we're talking about the quote-unquote automaton state that a patient was in, that patient was not reporting their experiences to Penfield in the slightest. So he had nothing to base uh, his no notion of what the direct experience was like, whereas in this case, the, the patient is able to report back their perspective on the experience. The patient talked about himself as quote-unquote I, quote unquote, I tried to quote unquote, get this word. I snapped my fingers. N now, I'm not sure what else exactly the patient would say, but Penfield is very explicit that in this case, the patient is a he. 
an I, a me. Even if the he is all the way back at this sort of beginning of the highest brain mechanisms, um, sort of right at that psychophysical boundary where the mind meets the brain, after all that, uh, once the initiation comes from, from the mind, the rest is simply a series of neuronal action, which is all more or less automatic. So that this the he, the, the person is trying to use a function that's normally perfectly available to him, flipping a switch that he normally is able to flip and get the result that he wants. When it doesn't work, he has to sort of find that different way around in and amidst these other automated functions. So let's wrap up our, our introduction to Penfield's work and let's wrap up our episode for today. This is the basis that I want us to work from. So let's quickly take stock before we close things up and make sure that we're well prepared for our episode uh, next week. First, Penfield tells us that he's trying to both understand and to distinguish between the brain's mechanisms. Uh, on the one hand, the quote-unquote biological computer, the functional machine, whatever we want to call it. The, um, and on the other hand, the brain's quote-unquote machinery for the mind. And that machinery for the mind, remember, <clears throat> that's either the mechanism by which the mind is created in and amidst all these other functions of brain, or it's more of a control panel by which the mind, um, you know, if it's if it turns out that the mind is made of some other substance entirely, then this machinery of the, the mind is sort of the control panel, the cockpit, the steering wheel, by which the functions of the brain are manipulated by the actually conscious actually choice-making, actually executively functioning mind. So in this context, with that in mind, Penfield gives us two opposing examples. On the one hand, he shows us what he tells us is the biological computer of the brain operating without the intervention of the mind. These are Penfield's quote-unquote automatons, resulting from a certain kind of seizure. They can function in a very elegant way. You know, for example, they can drive a car, they can play a piano, but they cannot make new decisions. They can't perform this kind of executive function. Uh, they can't even really create new memories, Penfield tells us. Now, alternately, Penfield shows us the fully present executive function that is frustrated in its purposes by a kind of wrench in the cogs of the biological computer, in the a problem that Penfield causes in the unthinking aspects of the mind. So when Penfield shows us the man who wants so badly to quote-unquote get the word butterfly, so much so that when the normal but button he would push doesn't work, he tries to actively sort of circumvent that malfunction in the system. Now, here, again, what we're seeing is the fully operational executive function. We're seeing the mind fully at work, fully in control of itself, fully present, uh, but it's trying to function at a malfunctioning control panel, at a malfunctioning interface between mind, consciousness, uh, executive function, and the quote-unquote biological computer, the pure functional machinery of the rest of the brain. Now, finally, and I should say that, you know, Penfield would 
probably broadly agree. Uh, he'd probably sort of roll his eyes at the way I'm phrasing things, but I, I think that Penfield would broadly agree with the summary I've given you so, so thus far about the points he's trying to make. Probably tell you I'm really over, overly simplistic. Probably tell you I should sort of clean up and you know, make make a sort of tighter, more professional English. But you know, fundamentally, I think he'd be down with the ideas. But this this is where I might be going a little far. I don't know if Penfield would agree with this characterization, but it's something that seems to happen over and over and over again as Penfield goes through his work. So what happens is that, in again, in my view, Penfield has a tendency to, to take anything that he understands fairly well and push it over into the category of a functional, mechanical aspect of the brain machinery rather than of the mind. So, you know, for example, language, movement, memory. Now, maybe not making memories, but certainly having them, accessing them. Um, all these different aspects of sensations, maybe not sort of, as he describes it, reveling in the richness of the sunset, that you need a mind for that. But in terms of actually Get garnering the experiences, all that falls into the province of the of the brain, of the quote-unquote mechanical, biological computer. Now, needless to say, I've been going on about this stuff long enough that you got to know that language is the one that most fascinates me in this case, that language ends up on the, on the brain side, on the machinery side of the brain-mind sort of barrier that he creates. In any event, the point that I want to make is that all of these things that Penfield manages to explain, to understand to some extent. Now, now he doesn't understand them completely. Where the science isn't there yet. In fact, the science isn't isn't there now. But he he understands them well enough. He understands where they're operating. He has some sense of how they're operating. He can root these functions in the physical presence of the brain. But once he explains them, once something is marked as explained. They're removed from possible considerations as a factor in the overall explanation of mind, which he eventually wants to get to. So if I can put this a little bit glibly, in trying to unlock what he would call the mystery of the mind, Penfield relegates anything that is not sufficiently mysterious to not being the mind. And I'll say, if you're wondering, you're kind of wondering, like, geez, is it possible that a tendency to set aside things that we understand and, and, and as being sort of ineligible to be counted as part of a working explanation? Well, if you're wondering if, if that's a habit that's going to end up causing us some problems down the road, well, you know, I hate to leave you with a cliffhanger, but I guess you're just going to have to tune in next time for the answer to that one. So thank you very much, as always, for joining me here today. I hope you'll be able to join us again next time for the thrilling conclusion of our look at Wilder Penfield. I'm looking forward to it.